If you would, take your Bible and turn to Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. If you'll remember back a couple of weeks ago when we were last in Lamentations, Jeremiah really was in these first nine verses of chapter 2 kind of experiencing some nostalgia about the way that the nation of Israel once was and God having communion with His people, uh, the splendor of the nation of Israel being their relationship with God and in the spiritual thriving of the nation. And and what he was lamenting in these first nine verses is one, that all of those things have been laid waste. And two, we saw the reality all throughout the first nine verses that God is the one who has ultimately brought that judgment. The, The undoing of those things was in light, in response to the fact that the people of God had left the Word of God. And so they had been judged. Today, we pivot just slightly from that nostalgia, and we move on to see a dark picture of what it means to fall into the hands of an angry God. We see in vivid detail the mourning, the despair, the lament of people who had departed from the Word of God. It is as if after reflecting on the blessings of God in communion with God in the splendor of His people and of the spiritual vitality of the nation and thinking about those days having gone by, uh, Jeremiah then turns and there's like this clearing at the edge of where maybe, remember one time uh, in Joplin, some of you will remember years ago there was a tornado there in F5 that literally like picked up a, a hospital and moved it off of its foundation. And I was there within a couple of days of that catastrophe. And the the phrase that I remember vividly, uh, the person that was giving us our safety briefing before we went out said, ladies and gentlemen, this tornado was licking foundations of homes off the earth as it was moving by. And, And you would come to where there was this debris. And I think that's the first nine verses of Lamentations chapter 2, but then you got to the edge of where the, the storm path had been, and it was literally sunk into the ground four or five feet and just scorched earth. And that is what the final verses of chapter 2 really are. Um, it is not a pretty picture. It is seeing clearly the utter devastation that comes in the life of a people who turn away from God. As verse 13 says, the cost of leaving the Word of God is not without devastation. So with that in mind, would you stand this morning as we solemnly read these words. Written under the inspiration of Almighty God, I believe, by Jeremiah, he writes, starting in verse 10, The elders of the daughter of Zion sat on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter 
of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what, can, to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have, been, have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all of the earth? All your enemies rage against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth and they cry, We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word, which, is command, which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalt, exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You have summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I, had, I held and raised my enemy destroyed. This is the Word of God to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning and we are struck by the profound suffering in these words. Let us not waste it. Father, would you write the eternal truth that you deal with all of the wages of sin, that you will be faithful to your word. Would you write those truths on all of our hearts, not that we would tremble and run from you, but that we might run to you. Would you give us wisdom even in this hour? And Father, this morning as we are gathered here, we remember the Coxwells as Scott is battling... Um, cancer and has a new chemo treatment and father also the Johnson family that's not able to be here with us this morning because of illness we lift them before you ask for your blessing upon them but father more than anything we ask that you would heal our souls in Christ's name amen you may be seated what we see here in these 12 verses 
is that on every side and at every level, every level of the nation there is agony and anguish. Jeremiah here captures the extent of God's judgment. I think if you were to write a New Testament verse above this section, it would be Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. The reality here is that Jeremiah is pointing out the truth that God deals with the sins of His people. And we've talked about that in previous weeks and that that really is a theme that runs throughout the book of Lamentations. And what we see is that no one escapes the judgment of God. Look at verse 10. He begins very abruptly that the elders of the daughter of Zion sat on the ground in silence. Now I don't think that it's wise to come to the word elder and read the same meaning into that word everywhere in Scripture. In an Old Testament sense, we're not exactly sure the, the exact place of what elder means in the city. But what we do know is that that Jeremiah here is speaking of probably heads of families, judges, leaders, people who held some seat of significance. Those who sat at the gates and expounded wisdom in some way. And we see the contrast of them having left the Word. And remember, we don't just get to them briefly leaving the Word and coming to chapter 2. But for a long period of time, these elders had left the, the, the Word And so they sit now, not in places of authority, but they sit on the ground in silence. They they once held a place of, of sharing the wisdom of God and of leading, but now they are left in the dirt, in sackcloth and ashes, which is a biblical reality for those who are lamenting. And they didn't lament alone, these leaders. Because we see at the end of verse 10, the young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. They're, they're, the, the picture of, of poetically of young women are those that are full of joy. Those who are full of uh, the anticipation of the future. Those who ultimately are being handed the next generation of the nation. But there is in this context no more joy, there is no more dancing, there is no more genuine celebration, there's no more looking to the future. These young women have been brought low. So the leaders were in mourning, the people were in mourning. Now that's not all. Because we see vividly in verse 11, even Jeremiah the great prophet himself who had warned the people time and time again to hearken unto the Word of God, he himself is left in lament. Look at verse 11. This is Jeremiah speaking in the first person since. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. He is absolutely here exhausted in his lament. He physically can feel it. Now, the word here, bile, conjures up some really nice thoughts. Um, and it can be translated liver, and there's uh, an entire argument about what, what is he really saying here? Uh, because liver was thought to be the largest organ where, where the, the seat 
of your affections, your emotions were? And so is he merely saying that, that he is so heartbroken? That's one take on what this verse means. Or is it really him saying, look, I'm throwing up to the extent that my bile, there's nothing left. Um, and it's interesting how people take so much time to try and figure out what he's exactly saying. And I go, have none of you ever, these commentators, have you never been so heartbroken that it makes you vomit to the point that you don't have anything left? And that's what I think is happening here. The, the prophet of God has seen the destruction. And we ask, well, why is he so heartbroken? And it's in verse 11, because of the destruction of my people. Because even infants and babies are dying in the street under this judgment. And so he comes and he is so utterly destroyed. The effects of the sins of the people in leaving the Word of God for the prophet of God are no mere intellectual anguish. It's visceral for him. He can feel it in everything that he experiences. And so again, we, he, we see here that no one escapes the consequences of sin. Not the intellectuals in a society, not the moral people, not the authorities, not the preachers, not the young, not the old, not the men, not the women. Everyone has fallen under the judgment of God because they have left the Word of God. And so we see the extent all throughout these verses of what it means when a people leave the Word of God. And I think we could just sit here today and ruminate on our own society having left the Word of God and why it is that we find utter destruction in our own cities and in our own streets and in our own homes. Because the judgment of God, my friends, will come upon every human being who despises the Word of God. Secondly, we see the grounds for, the reasons for this great lament. Ultimately, we know that sin is behind it all, but here we see that Jeremiah is moved by the wages of the sin of people. He enumerates then the grounds for the lament. And, and there are here four explicit reasons that he details, but then I want at the very end to return to the implicit reason why he finds himself in a lamentable state and why the people of God are the same. And the first reason is found in the latter part of verse 11 and verse 12. Because infants and babies faint in the streets, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What, what is being pictured here is famine. Uh, the, 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 the normal... Uh, military strategy in this day when you were going to conquer a city is you would besiege the city and you would cut it off from all supplies. And here Jerusalem has been beset for so long that infants are dying in their mother's arms. And in fact, we see later on um, that mothers are even resorting in verse 20 to cannibalism and eating their children. The, the famine here is from top to bottom. And, and, and what we find, so if, if you come to, to, to verses 11 and 12 and verse 20 and you think, oh my word, this is grotesque. Well, it is 
But what is more grotesque is if you read through Jeremiah, and beloved, as we're moving through Lamentations, I encourage you in your own private time to read through Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 14 points out that God had sent a previous famine seeking to correct his people in their sin but they refused in unrepentance to heed the word of God and now they are receiving the entire weight of God's earthly chastisement so so there is lament here because of the famine that is in the land and of course we understand in a spiritual sense that when the people leave the word of God in any generation, not only is there in a very physical, real sense here a, a, a famine, but there becomes a spiritual famine. One that Amos talks about of the Word of God not going forward. And, and I believe that if you open your eyes, if God would show you, you live in a day of spiritual famine. You live in a day where the churches are being starved of the Word of God and the people who stand in the place of the preacher are proclaiming not what God would have them, but what man would have them. And we'll get to that later. But secondly, not only is he lamenting because of famine, but he's also lamenting because of the death by the sword or death because of military strength. Look at verse 21. In the dust of the street lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. Priests, prophets, young, old men, women, all of them have experienced, and in verse 22 we have this phrase, no one has escaped or survived. Now this doesn't mean that there was absolutely no one uh, left. What it does mean is that everyone was impacted by the radical military might of Jerusalem's oppressors. Someone said this, when general judgment proceeds from God, the old and the young must suffer together. The old because they have not rightly educated the young, and the young because they have imitated the wickedness of the old. Friends, there's a warning there. And there's one here. We dare not just live on what our grandparents have told us. Now, if you, have a, if you come from a godly heritage, rejoice in that. But always filter everything, even if it is the dearest, sweetest person in your life. Filter it through the Word of God that you might not be guilty of passing on to the next generation error in accordance with the Word of God. It's interesting if we were to, I think, take Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, in light of Lamentations chapter 2, you'll remember the admonition to fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. In the face of what is said here in verse 22, no one escaped or survived, we have the weight of why Ephesians chapter 6 is so important. Because the young and the old will suffer together when the judgment of God comes against a people who have not been instructed in His ways. And again, this was in every place 
in the sanctuary of the Lord in verse 20, and in the streets in verse 21. What is being described poetically by by Jeremiah pointing both to the sanctuary and in the streets is that God is executing judgment in every place that He had found sin. And ultimately, what is being described is that everyone in Jerusalem, everyone who claimed to be the people of God had fallen short of the glory of God. And so where sin abounds, the judgment of God will come. God is not mocked, beloved. And what we sow, we will also reap. And some might say, well, I've known wicked people who seemingly never reap what they sow. I've known people who have prospered all throughout their life and they've lived in wickedness. Why doesn't God deal with them? Beloved, we have to level with the reality that living a life apart from God is judgment in and of itself. And if God chooses to leave an unregenerate person in their sin and rebellion until the final judgment day and they seemingly prosper here, I promise you the other side of eternity we will understand that we who have been chastened physically and in our spirit so that we, we might run to God, have all the more reason to rejoice. I've been reading a treatise on dying well. Not that I'm planning to anytime soon. But you never know. Um, and I'm always, uh, you know, I don't want to waste that. When that moment comes in my life, I do one of the things I, I want people to pray for me in is that in those hours I would be able to steward the gospel well. But anyway, I've been reading this, and, and one of the things that he deals with is this fear that people have about dying suddenly. And he makes this statement. He says, we should fear an unrepentant life more than we do sudden death. Because one of the two has a longer lasting consequence. Living in unrepentance throughout our lives is the judgment of God. It's the grace of God that brings us low, and we'll see this further, that we might come to repentance and live in Him whatever that costs us in this life. So not only is He lamenting because of the famine, I think both spiritually and physically, but also because of those who have perished and the chastisement of God by the sword, but he comes here emphatically, and I think here in verse 14, if we understood the Hebrew, we would sense the weight of this really being at the heart of the prophet. In verse 14, he's lamenting the reality of the false prophets who had come against the nation. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. And so we ask the question, why are their oracles, why are the prophets' oracles false? And the answer to that is because their oracles ultimately came from men and not from God. These were people who spoke not on behalf of the king, but on behalf of what they knew the people wanted to hear. And we find all throughout Jeremiah in, 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 in his writing there and the problems that are coming against the nation, the reality of these false prophets. You find the, 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 the narrative being played out in chapter 14, chapter 6, chapter 23. I'll read some of the verses here. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, uh, Jeremiah records, they have healed 
the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. These false prophets are the kind of people that would come and say, God's not going to judge you. Peace, peace, just pursue peace with the world around you. We should care about the world. The, the world is, the, is all, I mean, they're, they're so man-centered that it's just a light, tepid, everything's going to be peaceful as long as you have a peaceful mindset. It's kind of a name it and claim it sort of mentality, I would argue. Jeremiah chapter 14, again, this in the midst of, of, of God sending a lighter version of this famine. Hear the insanity of these words. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. These prophets were saying you'll have peace, you, you won't experience the sword and you won't experience... They were lying and manipulating people so that people would listen to them. In verse 20, excuse me, chapter 23, and you read chapter 23 in its entirety and you'll find uh, the, the description of the uh, false prophets through and through. Here in verses 21 and 20 of chapter 23, I did not send the prophets, God said, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to the people. And they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds these, the, the ultimate issue that we find here in, in Lamentations chapter 2 and in our day is that these false prophets were prophets of the people and not of God. The emphasis of verse 14, look, is they have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. They have not pointed out your sin. And, and here we have to reckon with the reality that God no longer in an Old Testament sense sends prophets to, to declare the Word of God, but He does give pastors and teachers, Ephesians tells us. And we have to ask this question for the church today in light of Ephesians, what is the job of the man who has been called to the office of elder and exercises the gifts of pastor-teacher? And the, the, the answer to that is singularly to proclaim the whole counsel of God. To expound the fullness of the Word of God regardless of what is going on in our society. To call our individual lives to repentance, but also the life of the nation. Beloved, I believe there's nothing more dangerous for the church today and for the saints than an ambitious man coming to stand in the pulpit. And what I mean is an individual who comes in with an idea, with what Bonhoeffer called a wish dream, uh, with his own vision. Man, I remember when I first went to school, and constantly there would be these classes where they would talk about, well, you've got to cast a vision. You've got to cast a vision. You've got to cast a vision. And, 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 and as I've grown in my understanding of the Word, I know why God spared me. I used to think that I was so deficient. And I am in many ways. But I used to think, I, well, God doesn't give me this vision. I just have a Bible. That's the point. Because God wants His Word expounded, not the ideas of men. 
The job of the preacher is not to come and hear from you the problem as you perceive it. The job of the preacher is to proclaim our problem from a scriptural grounding and to call men and women to repentance. We are to speak what God has spoken. We are not to be soothsayers. We are not to lull you in your sin. We are not life coaches. We are to be heralds for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so the question comes, why had these false prophets left the message of God? Because they thought they would lose the support of the people. Their popularity would wane. The affections of men would go away. And the same reasons exist today why the false prophets find their way into the pulpit. And friends, I want to lovingly say this to you. Ultimately, the ones responsible for the false prophets are not the people behind the pulpit, they're the ones in front of it. The reasons why false prophets rise up is because people give them a platform. People desire not to hear the Word of God, but to hear and have their own ears tickled. But beloved, the greater issue than... than, uh, I, I talked to Sister in Christ this week about... I think we've settled the fact that I'm a Paul Harvey nut. And he used to talk about in his vocation of being a radio broadcaster, and I'm not one of those, but he used to talk about being warmed by the fire of the affections of people. He was encouraged when people would encourage him. But he said the danger is not to become burned in that fire, not to become consumed. And the problem for so many pastors is that they burn in the fire of the adulation from the pew. There is nothing more dangerous to the ministry of a young man than the sweet old ladies in the church constantly telling him that he is the greatest thing to ever happen to this church because eventually he begins to believe that nonsense and then he begins to grow in arrogance and preach everything that he thinks instead of depending wholly on the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It's much better, much better To be able to say with Paul what he exclaimed in Acts chapter 24. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Or continuing earlier, to be able to hear and say with him in Acts chapter 20, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then to constantly have on his heart these words as an admonition from Paul himself. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Boy, that would cure a lot of the church today if men would understand that they have not built the church by their little cute devices and their programs and their schemes and their trite, trivial, tertiary doctrines, but Christ has purchased His bride with His own blood. I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you with tears. Friends, there are three things I believe 
that mark the ministry of a man that is genuinely called by God. One is a clear conscience that what he preaches to you, he also preaches to himself and seeks to live in. That will never be perfect, but a conscience that is clear before God, that he is resting in God and walking by grace with him. Secondly, a love for the Word, and that includes doctrine. If you find someone who claims to be a preacher, but they don't love the study of theological doctrine and what that means, run. He doesn't hold back from the whole counsel of God. He doesn't try to smooth the corners out on a text like Lamentations chapter 2 that is visceral. He allows the weight of that text to come to you. Clear conscience, love for the Word of God, and then I, I think in light of verse 11, we have a, a, a clear picture of what a man who is genuinely called by God will do, and that is in some sense he will bear a visceral grief over the sins of his flock. He will say with Jeremiah, my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. He, he, he will not bear the sins of, of, of his congregation, only Christ can do that, but he will lament over the reality. He, his aim then will not be to make you happy, but to, under the work of the grace of God and the Spirit of God, to make you holy. He will do, in fact, what here is said in verse 14 the prophets didn't do. He will expose your iniquity that you might repent and be spared the suffering of living under the delusion of a small God who never bruises his sheep. Listen to what John Calvin says. And some of you have realized that John Calvin brings some controversy. You know, when I was a young man, I used to think controversy is a bad thing. But I've learned in the reality of the context of the biblical worldview, controversy is a normal thing because we are always fighting against the lies of Satan. And generally, not always, but generally people who are despised are despised most by the loud goats and not the sheep. Listen to our brother Calvin. Let us learn by this how to distinguish between the faithful servants of God and impostors. For the Lord by His Word summons us before His tribunal and would have our iniquities discovered that we may loathe ourselves and thus open an entrance for mercy. But when what is brought before us only tickles our ears and feeds our curiosity and at the same time buries all of our iniquities, let us then know that the refined things which vastly please men are insipid and useless. Let then the doctrine of repentance be approved by us, the doctrine which leads us to God's tribunal, so that being cast down in ourselves, we may flee to Christ in mercy. The genuine prophet preacher of God is one who will ultimately expose your sin not 
out of unkindness, but out of a desire that you might be molded into the image of Christ, beloved. Ultimately, the thing that marks, and this is what I believe is the singular, if you ask me, Jay, what's your vision for ministry? Here it is. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. It is the aim of every genuine spirit called pastor, elder of God. That he would be able to ultimately say with Paul, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth, until Christ be formed in you. So many men are worried about building buildings and having a platform and whitening their teeth. And, And I went to a conference one time and I was with another preacher and he had a preacher hero and this idiot preacher hero, Lana, that's your word, idiot preacher hero, was there on this national platform. And y'all, I can't make this up. He was orange. (laughs) Don't trust a pastor above all things that spray tans. That's weird. My preacher friend was really irritated as we were walking up to the book table to get his book signed and I was singing the Oompa Loompa song behind him the whole time. Men who are so enamored with their $700 suits and their hair and all of those things cannot be in anguish over the souls that are entrusted to them. Can I also just beg of you, since we're on this topic, just a little bit of indulgence for an extracurricular, this I don't think finds a textual warrant here. You'll know that I care about doctrine. I hope that you've come to understand that. One of the pains that I have as a pastor also is when people want to argue over tertiary doctrines that ultimately are not salvific. And they'll come to, well, you say you care about doctrine. Care about my doctrine. And they'll shove in my face something that ultimately doesn't bear out Christ-likeness and the salvation of men. Beloved, I have to love a lot of people that I disagree with. And it is my desire to love you, not in accordance with a rubric from a denomination that I've been given, but in accordance with the Word of God that I might present you one day before Him having been sanctified in the truth. There is a balancing there. And ultimately here, His greatest fear will not be His pay or His comfort. His greatest fear will be that you would be left to the wolves of this age. Those who deny the virgin birth, who deny penal substitutionary atonement, who deny a literal hermeneutic of the Bible, the literal resurrection, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the undiluted grace of Almighty God. He will not wink at abortion or abuse or perversion in the church. He will not wink at the mockery of marriage in our day or shy away from clear, substantial doctrines that impact our salvation. And yes, He will appear stubborn and rash at times. And from time to time, He'll overstate things as He's dealing with His own sin. But His intent will be that you not be taken captive by foolish false prophets that seek to devour you and make merchandise with you, of you. Though you may not feel His pastoral pain, that's okay. Know that if God has truly called a man to shepherd the flock that He is among, there is a pain that never leaves Him. And we find that in verse 14 of Jeremiah's lamentation. And so what can you do? 
Seek to lament with him over the sins that we find in the body and in our community and seek to model and herald the gospel alongside of him. So we see lament over famine, over the sword, over the false prophets. You can tell that's near and dear to my heart as well. And then we see also lament over the scorn and derision that the people of God have received from the world. And again, these are people, remember, these are people who had at one time gotten really close to the church and, and tried to befriend them or the people of God. And now that the day has come, their real hearts are exposed in verse 15 and 16. All who pass along the way clap their hands. They hiss and they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of the earth? And all your enemies rail against you. They hiss, hiss and gnash their teeth and cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. You see, these were people that had cried peace, peace openly. That They had come to Jerusalem diplomatically saying, oh, we will be your friend. But in the moment that the catastrophe befell the city, the reality of the relationship between the world and the people of God was made clear. They ultimately scoffed and shook their heads. Friends, the church and the world have always been at odds and always will be. You can't put lipstick on this pig. Now that doesn't mean that we have to be adversarial, but the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light is a reality that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And we know, because of what we are told in the New Testament, especially Ephesians, that there is a spiritual battle that rages between Satan, and I don't mean to leave a dualistic mind uh, worldview to you, but there is a spiritual battle raging. And we know that the church will suffer if it seeks to live in light of this spiritual battle, declaring the whole counsel of God for our King. But know this, we will be scoffed, we will be mocked, we will be ridiculed in our day and age. You are absolutely a fool in our day, not only to believe in Jesus, but to believe that there's a God at all. So come and just reckon with the fact that you will be thought little of for the sake of Christ. But know this. The church has been brought low many, many, many times. But she's never been destroyed. God will never allow His redeemed to be overwhelmed in the torrent of judgment. He will ultimately bring them through. And that brings us to the last of what I mentioned. I, I, I said that there were five causes of lament. Famine, death by the sword, false prophets, der derision of the world. But really there is one overriding implied meaning of them all. And it is God Himself. Remember verses 1 through 9 of this chapter. God is the one doing all of this. And look at verse 17, most importantly in our passage. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word, which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the mighty of your foes. Beloved, here we see the reality of what Matthew Henry says, that all of our enemies are nothing more than the sword in the hand of God to bring us to the point of lament. God is the one who had brought them to the point of lamenting their state. 
Remember, look at verse 18 of chapter 1. The Lord is right, for I have rebelled against His word. He here is executing judgment because the people of God had left the word of God through the prophets. The problem in every age is that men forget the word of the Lord. Men forget. Friends, here's the reality. God doesn't owe any one of us one syllable of this book. He doesn't owe us the Bible. He doesn't owe us the redemptive narrative. We are all fallen sinners worthy of judgment. And yet God has poured out through the lives of men who have written these books a testimony to who He actually is and how He would have us to actually worship Him. And we have the audacity to walk away from it. And here is what Lamentations chapter 2 should teach you more than anything else. You may forget the Word of God. Pastor may ignore the Word of God. But our God never moves one inch from even one syllable of His Word. And what we find in the broader story here is that God had warned them. Well, Jeremiah chapter 18, we find these words. Now, for, now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am sharp shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, That is in the vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. What is God doing in Lamentations? In all of the famine, with all of the false prophets, again, that the people wanted, with the death and the derision? Beloved, hear this. When we look at the, prof at the profound suffering of Jerusalem and Judah in Lamentations, bleh, I can talk, Lamentations chapter 2, and we ask the question, God, what are you doing? These are your people. Why are you allowing them to go through this? The answer to that question, what is God doing? He's remembering His Word. He is carrying out exactly what He said that He would do. He is, in fact, in these passages, being faithful unto Himself. Friends, why do all of the theological doctrines matter? Because Christ is coming and because judgment is close, and because God has been clear, we also need to be clear about the Gospel. The good news, beloved, is not that you could have great health in this life or perfect relational status with your children or, 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 or monetary gain. The good news is that God sent His only Son to pay a ransom that on the day of calamity, when all of the enemies of God come against all of the nations and the judgment of God comes upon the people, we have a refuge in Christ our Lord. That is the Gospel. We are all wretched sinners. We have all fallen short of His glory. We have all 
apart from Christ become people worthy of damnation, but praise be to God, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has set us free not only from the penalty, but the power and one day the presence of sin. He has said, I will build for myself a holy people. And he is going to keep that word. He is going to do what he has said. And so Christ came as a He came to confront us in our sin as a good prophet, to shed His blood in our place as our great high priest, and now to rule over us as our kind and benevolent King. And friends, here's what I have to say to you this morning. If anyone wants to ever come into this pulpit as long as I draw breath and preach to you another gospel, let them. But I'm going to need bail money afterwards. Because this is the only gospel. The only gospel that as I look into your face that will save you on the day of wrath. And friends, some of you who have been here over the past 10 years of my ministry here and you've gone through the thick of watching people walk out that door. Some of because of my own foolishness and churlishness as a young man and I would admit that. But some of those people have walked out of that door because they wanted me to preach to you a different gospel. I love you more than that. And I'm more concerned with the day of judgment than I am whatever befalls me here. Beloved, there is but one gospel. And the reason theology matters is because we need to be accurate in what we are declaring to the nations. We must not leave the Word of God. The judgment of God, the Bible tells us, is revealed against all unrighteousness. And beloved, what Lamentations chapter 2 teaches us is there is exact, unequivocating agreement between the judgment of God's words and the eventual judgment of His hand. When He says He will destroy the wicked, when we find that all throughout the Psalter, read Psalm 91 when you go home today. It's not hyperbole. It's truth. As if it were happening in this moment. It's real. As He has spoken, the judgment will come. So He will accomplish it. He will not be mocked. We have seen that no one escapes His judgment. We have seen the grounds of lament, the famine and death, and the falsehood and the mockery. Now what I want you to see more than anything, is the cure. And friend, if you're here today and you've never come to Christ in genuine repentance, might today be the day that the Spirit of God opens your eyes and gives you a regenerate heart that you might flee to Christ in repentance and not to some foolish prayer. What I want you to see is the cure for this lament of leaving the Word of God. I want you to see in two parts. It's so plain in the Word. Look at verse 13. Jeremiah begins with this question, What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? What he's saying, what can I say to you? This judgment is not like any other judgment that has befallen man. I mean, you've been in this situation before when a friend or a loved one is going through something excruciating and it is really beyond words. The best thing that you can do in that moment is remain silent. 
Verse 20, he expounds on that. Who have you dealt with like this? Well, beloved, I want you to know that one day that what we find in Lamentations chapter 2 is child's play compared to the judgment that is coming. The walls, even in verse 18, lament. And we've seen this anthropomorphic language in Jeremiah's poetry so far. In, in verse 4 of chapter 1, the roads to Zion mourn. The ramparts in chapter 2, verse 8, lament. But here the walls wail. The city has been brought low. And the question is why? Is it to destroy His people? Well, for a time, apparently. But that's not the ultimate end of God. The ultimate end to lament is not just that God somehow would bring us low for our destruction if we belong to Him. It ultimately is that we would be brought to repentance. God lets us feel the weight of our sin that we might never feel the eternal weight of His wrath forever. He allows us to feel pain in this life that we might run to Christ. Jeremiah 18 and 19 then are the solution to the question. Verse 13 is the question, who else has been dealt with like this? And the answer to that is everyone will be. God will be faithful to His Word with everyone. But then in verses 18 and 19, their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears stream down like a torment day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Beloved, there truly are things that are more important than sleep. That's what's being said at the end of verse 18. It is more important than you, that you are right with God today than that you get rest tonight. It's more important for you to come and repent and cry out to God than it is for you to sleep this evening. And then verse 19, Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night, watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Might we be a church that not only lament and repent of our own sin in coming to Christ, but might we be a church that sees the reality of the generation before us that is famished for the Word of God and be people who cry out to God night and day that He would raise up men to proclaim the Gospel with steadfast courage that the Word of God would not be departed from. Jeremiah is ultimately teaching us, friends, that the one who bruises us in this life ultimately does that to restore us. He does it to bring us to repentance. He, he does it to speak to us. It's like that C.S. Lewis pain is the megaphone that God uses to rouse a deaf world, telling us to flee to Christ, to know that salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. Beloved, men might help you be more erudite in your thinking logically. They might help you emotionally in your frame. But only the blood of Jesus Christ can make a sinner clean. Cry out to Him as long as God gives you breath. Pour out your heart before God. And know that our God is one that heals. John Morrison wrote these words. He said, His voice commands the tempest forth. That is the storm and stills the stormy wave. And though His arm be strong to smite, tis also strong to save. Our God is strong enough to bring us low, 
but he does that that he might restore us. Friends, the more that I read Lamentations, the more I am aware of the modern impulse to look at the weighty judgment of God against his people and say, well, this is pretty heavy-handed. My God would never do what God has done in Lamentations chapter 2. Beloved, that's blasphemy. What we should do in light of the weight of God's judgment is not to question how severe God has been, but to reckon with the reality of how far away from the Word of God we have come. To shudder of the, this reality in our day. When we mock His institution of marriage and we murder children in utero and we pervert His good gifts and we form worship around our own particular preferences and not around His Word, what, what we should do is realize that the God of Lamentations chapter 2, if He has been this severe with the nation of Israel, either one of two things is true. He is very long-suffering with us, and yet judgment will still come. Or two, there are many people in our day and age who claim to follow Christ, but don't know Him at all. Friends, as we grow in our understanding of God's lamentable chastisement, and the reality that the people of God have received the chastening hand of God so that they would repent, I think that it will make our hearts burn with the words of Peter in John chapter 6. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and said, and, and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Do you remember what he said? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, where else can we go but to Christ? For He and He alone has the words of eternal life. Friends, if we experience justice and death and judgment, be sure of this. It doesn't come because God is too harsh. It comes because we have lived merely on the words of men. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today with our hearts heavy in some sense. Father, we all realize that to certain degrees we've been caught up in the syllabubs of modern thought and we've given our minds over unhelpfully uh, and unrepentantly and in an ungodly fashion at times to the philosophies of men. Would you do what only you can do and open our minds. Give us a passion for your word. Give us a hunger for these words. Help us to live our lives not just merely knowing biblical facts, but having hearts that desire to see you clearly in the text and to love our neighbor well and to worship you rightly. Father, would you guard us from leaving your word? Father, would we consider it a 
A kindness when You send calamity in our lives that causes us to turn and to cling to You and to the Gospel that You have spoken through Your Word. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know You, who thinks that the Gospel is nothing more than religious child's play or that the Gospel is something to give them uh, religious status. Father, would You bring them to repentance and would You show them the glories of Christ and the wonderment of Your Word and might they flee to You in faith and repentance by the work that You and You alone can do.